0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we left off last week, where we dive back into this week. And as you're finding Hebrews chapter 9, we're about to take a dive into the first 14 verses of this beautiful chapter. If you're with us for the first time today, we've been journeying through this letter. And uh, I pray that as we explain it, as I explain it, that you'll, you'll get a sense of where we're going and what the context is of this beautiful portion of this letter. After I get done preaching, uh, we are going to see a sister baptized by her husband, new members of the church, and celebrate the gospel as we see it pictured in water baptism. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 9, I want you just to think about this for a moment. Have you considered how powerful the human conscience is? You know, there are people that can have everything that the world has to offer in a materialistic sense. But if their conscience is miserable, they can wreak havoc. And they're just, they're just dangerous, destructive people. But conversely, if a person has nothing, really, to speak of in a worldly sense, but if their conscience is clean before a holy God, then they can sing with joy those words from Romans chapter 8. That beautiful part there, verse 31, It says, If God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give me all things? The point is, is that the conscience, the human conscience, is a powerful, powerful thing. And where we find ourselves in the letter of Hebrews today is a continuation of the argument where the writer of Hebrews, who remember the context, is writing to first century ethnically Jewish Christians who have trusted in Christ. They've received the message of the Jewish apostles, of Messiah being the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But because of persecution in Rome, where they likely lived in the first century, they were wavering, they were possibly about to give up on their trust in Jesus and to go back to being part of the Old Covenant, going back to Judaism and the law because it was more socially acceptable and they wouldn't be persecuted for it. And So the point of Hebrews is the author trying to encourage them to stick with Jesus, to hold fast to him and draw near because Jesus is better than anything in the Old Covenant. Not that the Old Covenant was a mistake or didn't have its place But it was all meant to be a shadow pointing to the reality of Christ. It was all meant to bring us to this point where we're trusting in Jesus, who's the new and better priest. He's the new and better sacrifice. He's the new and better covenant. He's the new and better tabernacle covenant. He's the new and better tent. He's the new and better rest of the people of God. And here in Hebrews chapter 9, he's continuing that argument, how Jesus, this covenant that Jesus has established between God and his people is a better covenant. And now we're getting into the deepest, the deepest waters, maybe in all of the New Testament theologically. But even though they're deep, they're actually quite clear. And we're getting into the Holy of Holies. And so what I want to do this morning, here's our flow, is we're just going to read the text. There's 14 verses. I've broken it up into three segments. We're going to read Verses one through five, stop. Explain a little bit. Verses 10, six through ten, stop. Explain a little bit, and then uh, eleven through fourteen, stop and explain a little bit. And then I'll be done. And then we'll see this sister be baptized. But here's the bottom line up front. Here, this is the only really thing we're gonna have on the screen as far as notes. If you're a note taker, here's just a bottom line up front, the bluff for you military guys that like to just down and dirty. What's what's the point of this? Well, here it is. Here's the main point: the new covenant is better than the old because Jesus is a better priest and a better sacrifice who's able to cleanse our conscience, not just our flesh. So hold fast to Jesus. Let me read that again. Just keep it up there. The new covenant is better than the old. In other words, the gospel's better than the law, That the law, the law pointed to the gospel, but the gospel's better. Jesus is a better, because Jesus is a better priest and a better sacrifice who's able to cleanse our conscience, not just our flesh. So hold fast to Jesus. Well, let me pray and let's work through this text. Lord, help us. Help me be magnified. We just want to see these glorious realities, and by seeing these truths, we want to be transformed by them. We want to be made more into the image of Jesus. May the end of today be more awe, more reverence, more wonder, more worship, more transformation, more clean consciences in this church. And for any of our friends that are here today that don't know you, may you, for the first time, give them a heart to believe and eyes to see that their only hope is the one true mediator, which is Jesus, who alone can stand between them and God and satisfy their deepest need. So, Lord, do this, I pray, and help me serve these people in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verses 1 through 5, let me read and stop and give some thoughts. Now, even the first covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, following on chapter 8, which was just an argument that the new covenant is better than the old, He says, now even the first covenant, speaking of the old covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. Now he's reflecting back on the worship in the wilderness of the people of God after being rescued from Egyptian captivity in Exodus. And then Moses goes up on Sinai, receives the law, and then they worship in the wilderness for 40 years before they make it into the promised land. For a tent was prepared this tent where the priests were supposed to meet. A tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat and of these things we cannot now speak in detail it's not like he was unable to i think the point that he's making there in verse 5 is he's just saying listen we could go into we could do a deep dive into all of this but i'm just he's saying i'm just giving you a little picture of this the point that i'm trying to make is not to go into nitty-gritty detail but let's just kind of think about what's happening in these first five verses and just make a comment and then move on to verses 6 through 10. I just want us to notice in the first couple of verses, just, just notice the, the regulations, the specificity of the old covenant. And we, we read all through Exodus and Leviticus. If you're, if you're reading through that someday, notice just the specificity and the intensity of the instruction on how God's people were to approach him. Now, praise God, we live in the new covenant and not the old, but I do just want to make this observation for us casual Americans, and I'm glad that I live now. I'm, I'm really glad that I live now in this culture and in this day. But just a thought that if the new covenant is better than the old, if grace is better than the law, if if the if the gospel's better than the law, if the age we live in now is better than the old, what impact should that have on the way? That we worship God, I think our worship should even be better in a sense, and so th- there 's this, this this kind of notion I think that is an unhealthy notion sometimes in American church culture, where the highest ideal is a kind of casualness and I, and i 'm all for casualness I'm, i mean i 'm from the nation of Southern California. <laughs> When I came to Fort Benning, now Fort Moore, 30 years ago, I owned two pairs of jeans and 15 t-shirts. And I came to church for the first time in Columbus, Georgia. And let me just say, nobody was wearing that in the church that I attended at the time. And I felt a little out of place. I'm all for casualness in a sense, but let's not make an idol out of it. And, And what's going on here is there is a kind of reverence of the soul that we'll see that the new covenant is wanting to bring out. And we do ourselves and unbelievers around us And the ethos of our church, if we think that the highest ideal is a kind of relaxed casualness, it it sort of, it puts us off center on what it means to approach a holy God. Now, I am not trying to impose a kind of external regulation on the way we dress or the songs we sing or the liturgy that we do. I'm just making the note that casualness isn't always the best thing in the world, especially when we approach a holy God. There should be a kind of reverence that should inform the Christians of every culture, regardless of the exterior form that it takes. And then he goes on to say, there, there's this second curtain, so that's the, 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 the holy place, and then behind the second curtain, and so this is the tabernacle, a kind of court, and he's really just interested in this holy place, which was a small little section of, the, of a tent erected, which is where the priest and high priest would meet with God. And then behind this holy place, at the end of this holy place, would be the most holy place or the, the Holy of Holies. And what's there? Verse 4, he says that there's a golden altar of incense that was being, uh, bringing. Uh, incense being burned day and night, and that was part of the responsibilities of the priest, to keep this this aroma that was to smell good, sort of metaphorically, in in a sense, before the Lord. Day and night is, is a kind of symbol of the worship of God's people that goes up before the Lord. And the Ark of the Covenant. This specific box, if you will, that God instructed Moses to build in Exodus according to very specific regulations. It was to be this place, that this box that contained certain objects. And what was in it? Well, he says that it was to hold this, this golden urn with manna. This bread that was representative of God feeding Israel miraculously during their, their wanderings in the desert. And Aaron's staff that butted, so this, this long stick, what's that, what's that referring to? Well, in Numbers chapter 13, when Israel was wandering through the desert, they were starting to get grumpy with Moses' leadership and with the leadership of, of Aaron and the priesthood. And so God said, okay, bring bring all the bring, everybody bring a staff here to the middle and one of them is going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make one of them bud like a dead stick. I'm going to make it sprout and that's the one as a symbol of my authority that I'm giving Aaron and his sons in their priesthood. And so this, this dead stick that was a shepherd's staff, God miraculously caused to bud with green leaves to be an expression of his endorsements of the leadership of Aaron and the priesthood as the people were grumbling against Moses and Aaron and the leadership. So it's a kind of correction of the people of God for grumbling against the leadership that God instituted over them. And he's wanting to remind them of his leadership, his staff that at times corrected them in their wilderness wanderings in the desert. And then the third thing that's in this Ark of the Covenant is the tablets, the the actual tablets of stone the Ten Commandments that that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, and then above this Ark of the Covenant that contained these three things in this Holy of Holies was the cherubim, these, these little angels that Moses was instructed, these angelic figures that he was instructed to craft, and there's specific instruction in Exodus as to what they were to look like. They were to have their wings spread over this middle part of the mercy seat and they were to have their heads down sort of looking at each other but not up to the Lord in reverence and God said to Moses in Exodus that it's there in the middle in the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant as these cherubim figurines showing the glory of these angelic figures worshiping the Lord. It's there that God would meet with the high priest, that he would meet with Moses and speak to him. And that's the picture that the writer of Hebrews is giving us, this beautiful picture of the most holy place physically on the earth here in the Holy of Holies. Just just a reflection or 2 again i just talked about just the casuals i just want us to see the the holiness of god in meeting with his people the priests would come in and we're about to read about the priests here in just a moment in verses 6 through 10 but they couldn't even enter this place but once a year and they had to prepare themselves for a week with ritual washings and and getting ready for this this time. And and they couldn't come without blood. And everything in this holy of holies had a purpose. And it was meant to show something about God's dealings with his people. And and it was there that God met with his people. And it was a place really for the priest and especially the high priest and only the high priest who could go in once a year on the day of atonement. It was a place of fear, and dread, because if you did anything wrong, if you approached that holy of holies without doing all of these things that God told you to do, you would die. In fact, a couple sons of Aaron at one point did that in Numbers, and they, they dropped dead, because they approached God irreverently. And that's the picture here of this first covenant, holy of holies, that the writer of Hebrews is drawing us to. Okay, now let's read verses 6 through 10. He says, these preparations having, this is kind of, he just basically gave us a, a little mini tour of the furniture of the Holy of Holies. Now he's going to give us a picture of what the priest does in that place, the Holy of Holies, on a daily basis and then once a year. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Into this first section, the holy place, but into the second, meaning the holy of holies, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and that's referring to Leviticus chapter 16, which if you remember, we read a couple weeks ago, which was the instructions about the day of atonement. It was the one day of the year that the high priest would go in behind the veil from the holy place into the Holy of Holies, and it's a very small, it's about five meters by five meters, it's a perfect little cube, a very small little room where this Ark of the Covenant is with Aaron's staff and the, and the manna and the tablets of stone. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in there, and we're going to read about once he did. That, that's, that's the Day of Atonement, where he would, before, transfer the sins. He would do all these ritual washings for his own sins, all of this blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then he would bring the blood. Remember there were two goats. He would bring the blood of the spotless lamb into that holy of holies to sprinkle on the mercy seat to atone, at least in a temporary sense, or to purify Israel, at least in an outward sense. And then remember that poor one little goat, the scapegoat, he would put his hands on the head of this scapegoat, and he would send him away into the wilderness. And there was this one guy who drew the short stick, and it was his job to take the scapegoat out into the wilderness. And so what you see is, not only is one lamb dying to appease God's wrath, and his spotless, this spotless lamb's blood is being sprinkled on this seat, but the guilt of the people, at least yearly, is being transferred symbolically to the head of this goat, and this is where we get the English word scapegoat from, is being taken away. And this is the Day of Atonement, and it only happened once. It's what the Jewish people today call Yom Kippur, which, which, by the way, is what just happened recently during the attacks from this terrorist group in Israel on the Israeli people, happened on the day of Yom Kippur, intentionally, I might add, by the way, in an act of incredible evil and heinousness to attack the Jewish people on this holy day for them. Of course, they're still under the old covenant but, and, and wrong in their understanding of the scriptures, but, but this is a sp- very specific day. This is, this is the one day that it's happening he would go into the holy place but once a year not without taking blood verse 7 which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people by this verse 8 the holy spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing which is symbolic for the present age according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered that can't, listen to this verse 9 this is important Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Okay, what's going on there? We've got to do a little bit of explaining here. Okay, this this is a parable, in a sense, that the Holy Spirit has orchestrated in the tabernacle and the priestly duties in the Old Testament. And what is he saying? He's saying that the priest would go in once a year, and then in verse eight, the verse is saying the, the the Holy Spirit is saying through this scene that he set up in the old covenant that this was a picture, and in verse nine, he's saying it's symbolic for us in the present age. It's meant to show us that as important as this was in the life of Israel, this particular law, this particular mode of worship, could not do something. What couldn't it do? Verse 9, it could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And not only could it not perfect the conscience of the worshiper, it couldn't ultimately even take away their exterior sin. It couldn't wash the outside because they had to do it time and time and time again. But why is that? Because verse 10, he says, this was all under God's purpose. He says it only dealt with with regulations for the body. It only dealt with the exterior imposed until the time, until the time of reformation. And so it was all under God's plan. Until the time when the promised Messiah would come. Remember the covenants that we talked about? Adam and Noah and and David, or Moses and David and Abraham. God had a plan to unfold redemption until the time when he would bring full and final restoration, which is through Christ. And by the way, on verse 10 there, that little word reformation is not talking about the Protestant Reformation. (laughs) It's, it's just a way of saying that the, the time of the gospel coming to bear, the time of restoration, the time when Christ will reform us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Okay, so a couple points of application before we get to verses 11 through 14, which I think is the real heart of this text. I don't think many of you have said this a few times when we've been in this deep section of Hebrews. I don't think many of you, um, there are times, you know, we'll say, hey, Brad, can we do this? Or we'll say to the, one of the elders, hey, I wish we could sing this song or why don't we do this? But, you know, one thing we've never got, we've been a church for about 18 and a half years now. This April, we'll celebrate our 19th year as a church. I've never gotten uh, an email or a request or nobody's ever asked for a meeting to say, hey, Brad, one of the things that I think we should do at Crosspoint is return to the Old Testament sacrificial system. I, Brad, I, we'd love it if we, you know, killed some birds and some goats and maybe some bulls and you spent a, a week preparing yourself ritualistically and we put a little, you know, pitched a tent up on the stage. Nobody's ever, ever called for that or asked for that. And so you might be thinking, well, gosh, why, why do we, why do you take, the, why can't we just zoom through Uh, you know, some of these Old Testament books like Exodus and Leviticus and skip through them in our Bible reading, and, you know, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, which are all about these things. Why don't we just kind of hit the fast-forward button and get to the, the stuff that's a little bit more applicable? Well, friends, nothing, I want you to see this, nothing is more applicable if you see the picture that the Holy Spirit, and it says here, verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicates something to us by causing the writer of Hebrews to write this. This is part of the New Testament scripture. So looking deeply and understanding what's happening in this Old Testament shadow helps us appreciate and with more reverence understand the reality of the new. So we are not tempted to return to the Old Covenant system of sacrificial worship and animal sacrifice to temporarily atone for our sins on an earthly basis and even that temporarily. No, we aren't. But what's the application? We are, though, tempted. We are tempted, just like Israel was tempted and missed the point oftentimes of the point of these shadows of this Old Testament sacrificial system, which was good, but even that they missed the point And we too miss the point and are likewise tempted to, through our own attempts at self-righteousness, glory in our own efforts to make ourselves appear clean on the outside, and we stop at that and think that that is our religious duty that the Lord somehow is pleased by, or even more insidiously, that the people around us with are satisfied, and then we can kind of project a kind of exterior holiness to the people around us. And friends, that's the thing that the Holy Spirit I believe wants to drill down in our hearts. It's very easy for us to like these Jews in the old covenant who missed the point of the shadow. They missed the reality that it was pointing to by and large. And we too, because we are by nature wanting to go back Not to the old covenant, but we're wanting to go back to the times before we were saved to find our justification in our own merit, in our own selves. And even though we may be Christians, we go back subconsciously at times to putting our religious faces on, so to speak, and being okay with that, and giving a kind of exterior sacrifice of Christian duty without really dealing with the inner man and the conscience, which is what the new covenant was meant to deal with. And when we do this, and it's very easy to do, we slowly addict ourselves to the opinions and the applause and the approval of others. And the fear of man becomes our functional master. It becomes the thing that we sacrifice to please. And before we end up knowing it, we fall into this religious facade, but it never really works. It doesn't satisfy our conscience. It might for a while, but it can't change our hearts. It never satisfies, and it never ultimately delivers. Mere outward form of religious expression. Mere outward Christian duty doing things to please others, to fear of man, the desire for the approvals of others is a merciless master and it always demands more. But as we'll see here in just a minute when we read verses 11 through 14, Jesus promises something better, a freedom, a freedom, not just, hear me, this is the point of the text. He offers a freedom, the new covenant, the work of Jesus offers us a freedom not just from the shadow of old covenant sacrifice. Of course, we know that. But it's deeper. He offers us a freedom from the self-righteousness of our own religious works that we tend to rest in rather than the free grace of Christ in the gospel. That's the heart of this text. And only God can do that because he's the only master that can be satisfied. And his son is the one who's done the satisfaction. And union with him is what satisfies our soul. So let's read about that in verses 11 through 14 and end on this. Verse 11. And man, when you're reading New Testament epistles, a lot of times when you see the word but, it's a transition and it means glory's coming. (laughs) But, but when Christ appeared, Here's the reality of the new covenant. Here's the argument. Remember the flow of his argument. He's wanting to make this argument that Jesus is better than the old covenant. He's better than exterior sacrifice because he's able to do something that religious effort, even though it had its purpose in the old covenant, cannot do he's able to cleanse our conscience to hold fast to Jesus and so his point in verse 11 let me read it but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come even through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, meaning priests, with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay, I want us to just, as we end this here, I want us to just think about verses 11 through 14 piece by piece, and if we can see it, if we, let's consider these verses slowly. And even if you're not, listen, I think it's a it's a spiritual scheme of the devil that has presented this assumption in the minds of many people, even some Christians, that the Bible is sort of unattainable to really be understand. And although there are no doubt difficult parts of the Bible to understand, in fact, Peter at the end of his letter, Second Peter, speaks about Paul and he says, "You know, our brother Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand." I, I know, I know that's that's true. I'm not saying that the Bible is is, is, is just always easy to understand. But I will say this, that everything that you need for life and godliness, no matter where you are, friends, you can get this. And here's, here's, here's what, if you, if we will just read this slowly and think through it, these may be deep waters, but they are clear waters. And right now, these verses, verses 11 through 14, present some of the most holy maybe the most glorious scene in all of the bible and if you can see this here's the juice here's the power of this particular text is if you can see this with your mind's eye the holy spirit is pleased to work through the word to do things that no sermon or no human no human instruction can do just for the glory of his name and the good of our souls. So I'm saying all that to say that, friends, brothers and sisters, you can get this. This is the deepest part of Hebrews, but it is accessible. It's understandable. You just have to read it slowly and think about it. So let's do that. It says that when Christ appeared, so he's contrasting with the Old Covenant temporary priest. And remember the argument of Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus is a better priest. He's he's from on high. He has no beginning and no end. He, He has no sin. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. He's better. And he's the high priest of the good things that have come. What does that mean? It means that Jesus in his life and death and resurrection and his ascension as not only the priest. But the king of kings has brought his kingdom here now. And so although we are not experiencing all that Jesus has for his people in the final consummation of glory, the new heavens and the new earth after his return, we do have, in a sense, a down payment, a deposit of the kingdom of God here now. And so Christians, this might be helpful for some of us, Christians are always in this age living in kind of an already-not-yet tension. We already have the king who's here. He reigns over everything. There's nothing that has not been put under his feet, but the full final consummation of his reign is not yet fully realized, and it won't be until Jesus returns. And the Christian that can understand that gap, that can understand that tension, that Jesus is here, he's the king of the world, there's no president, there's no dictator, there's no terrorist, there's no market, there's no financial situation, there's no cell in our body, there's no disease, there's no amount of wickedness that is not under his feet and under his sovereign control, but yet we live in this time Between his first coming and his second coming, an already not yet tension where he rules all things, but he hasn't finally and fully squashed and vanquished all victory, which he will do at the end of the age when he comes again. And he has left us here in this already not yet tension for divine and glorious purposes to be a witness of the supremacy of Christ, which is coming fully on that day. So it's it's coming it's here, but it's coming. It's here, but it's coming. And not only is that case the case universally, but it's also, man, it's also the case in my own soul. I am already seated with Christ in heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 1, but I ain't quite there yet. I am already, but not yet. And I can't wait to get to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, which says that through, by one offering, he has perfected those who are being sanctified. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. Why do those that have been perfected still need to be sanctified? Either the grammar of the Holy Spirit is bad, which I doubt is the case, or God is showing us that there's tension in the Christian life, already but not yet. He's the high priest of things that have come, not will come, have come but aren't fully yet here. Through the greater and more perfect tent, not this earthly tent, but heaven where God is in the Holy of Holies. So think about this. Contrast in your mind. These earthly priests are doing something temporarily on a patch of dirt in, in, in Jerusalem, and Jesus is doing something eternal in the heavenlies before God, not on the mercy seat on earth, but in the mercy seat before God the Father. So here we have the Son, the King priest. Standing before, as our priest, as our mediator, in the holiest place in all, standing before God, the tent in heaven. And he enters, verse 12, once for all. Once for all. Not every year on Yom Kippur or on the day of atonement or every time we sin again. Once for all. And what's he offered there? He's not bringing the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. And what is he procuring? What's he securing in that moment? Eternal redemption, not conditional redemption, eternal redemption for all those that trust in him. Now, listen, uh, just a little doctrinal aside, I believe in the preservation of the saints. I believe that only those who are truly born again, that those who are truly born again, cannot lose their salvation because of promises like this in the Bible. And if this is all that the Bible said about redemption, then this is all I would need to know the security and the certainty of the end of every Christian. Now, are, those, are there some people that seem to be Christians, that we think are Christians, that ultimately at the end of their life or at some point in their life reject Christ and ultimately prove themselves not to be Christians? Yes, the Bible's full of examples of that. But it's not that that person lost something. It's that they were self-deceived and maybe deceived us and they never had it. What Jesus does in this holy, holy of places in heaven is he secures something for all those, John 6, that the Father has given to him. He secures and eats eternal redemption. So if you're a Christian, listen, if you're trusting in Christ right now, you are eternally secure. Hold on to that. That doctrine isn't meant to be something that causes you to relax and give up as a kind of fire insurance policy. That doctrine is meant to cause you to hang on because that's who you are. Grab onto the already it's mine because the not yet is coming. Eternal redemption. For, verse 13, if the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of heifer, sanctify for the purity of the flesh, meaning the exterior, which we just read in the previous section, doesn't really get to the root of the problem, which is my heart and my mind and my conscience. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ The blood of Christ, the son of God, God himself, who, as we read about in Ephesians chapter one, is the exact imprint of the glory of God. He's the one that made everything. Colossians chapter one. He's the he's the word of God with God in the beginning. He's God, God, the son, this triune God, God, the father, God, the son, God the Holy Spirit. And so how much more will the blood of Christ, will the blood of God the Son, who through the eternal Spirit, oh my gosh, friends, we're getting into this beautiful interaction between the Trinity, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself. So we have the Father who is planning your redemption. We have the Son who's actually accomplishing your redemption in his perfect life, satisfying the holiness of God by his law obedience and his righteousness and putting it forth in place of our disobedience and unrighteousness, satisfying the wrath of God, ultimately not, think about this, what this verse, verse 14 is saying is that what Jesus is doing ultimately isn't merely on an earthly cross, but then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, through it says that Jesus is offering himself through the Spirit, it's as if the Spirit is bringing God the Son into the Holy of Holies, placing his perfect sacrifice before the holiness of God on behalf of the people of God who are sinful, who have no hope but him, and through the Spirit, the Son is standing before the Father, and the the wrath, the holiness, the glory of God is satisfied. Satisfied. There, without blemish to God. We're we're in we're in the deepest parts of the glory of God. The Father planning, the Son accomplishing, the Spirit bringing the Son to the Father once and for all, forever securing an eternal redemption. And then what happens? The end of verse 14 takes us from the most hidden, glorious, secret, holiness place, holiest place in all of the universe and brings it back down into the heart of every human. What's it for? To purify, to clean your guilty conscience from all of the things that keep you up at night. He does more than wash the outside. He cleans the inside. That's the goodness and the personalness of the beauty of the gospel. Oh man, no, 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 no. Just let that sit on you for a second. The most beautiful, glorious thing in the highest of the Holy of Holies is happening in the triune glory of God and the consequence of it is it's coming down into your heart and what's it doing? It is purifying your conscience. And then when your conscience is purified, what are you able to do? get up from your dead works of self-justification, free yourself from the fear of man and from the exterior facades that you put on and serve the Lord in gladness. (laughs) Praise God. Now, I am tempted. I am tempted to try and do a whole bunch of application now. And I think I'm bad at that. Trying to get better, but I don't think that's the best thing to do right now. I just want you to end with this picture. The conscience is a powerful thing. We all know it. When it's tormented, it can set kingdom on fire and destroy souls, and destroy us from the inside out. But when our conscience is free, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, what have you done? What right now? would mortify you? What would mortify you if everyone in this room knew about you? You have those things? I do. (laughs) What can I do with that thing? Who can take care of it? Not a bunch of good sermons. Not religious works. Something that happens in the heavenly holy of holies the Son being ushered by the Spirit before the Father, and my guilty conscience being purified there. And that's mine. That's mine. That's the beauty. That's mine. That's for me and for you and for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. Where can I take my guilt? Where can I take the thing that plagues my soul? There. There. And then I can serve the living God and sleep at night because God is for me and not against me. Amen. Lord, the gospel is so good. It's, it's far better than we imagine. And it's so practical. It is so transcendent. Yet, it is so imminent. It is as high as high can be, but it reaches down into the lowest of lows, the hearts of people like us. Lord, I know that there are people in this room whose consciences are tormented. They may even be believers, but they're racked with guilt because of things that they have done or even things that they still occasionally return to, the vomit that they return to, the sin that you died for, they return to. And to appease their guilty conscience, they run back to things just to escape from the torment of their guilty conscience. Lord, would you, by your grace, just by helping us see what's happening in the gospel and in the holy of holies. Finally, put our consciences at ease and renew us afresh by the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. And for those that do not know him, Lord, would you, by your grace, help them see that this is their only hope, to trust in Jesus, this high priest, who alone can purify them. From the inside out. I do it, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.